When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Everything is Black and White podcast brought to you by Chronicle Live, bringing you the latest insight on everything to do with Newcastle United. You can find us on iTunes, Acast, Spotify or most podcast providers. Hello and welcome to the Everything is Black and White podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Musgrove, joined by our football editor, Mark Douglas. We're still in the middle of a lockdown due to coronavirus. Uh, Mark, it's all a little bit crazy at the moment, but how are you keeping yeah, I mean, you know, it's uh, it's it's a very very strange situation. I think we're probably all just kind of getting you know, making sense of every day as it as it comes because it does feel like you know there's no um, there's there's no sort of end to this in sight. And I think unfortunately our little part of it is talking about football and and um, yeah, I think we're we're, we're kind of missing the live football, aren't we? But it's been quite quite fun to talk about some of the, the good moments from um, recent times past, but. Yeah, I can't wait for it to come back. I think we all miss it, don't we? Well, that's where we'll start with the latest kind of update on when it will come back. I mean, the last time we spoke, the date of April the 30th was still being touted that isn't going to happen now. But FIFA have, uh, you know, have moved the date, so which means the Premier League season looks like it will be completed. Do you still think that it will be? I mean, everyone is aiming to complete the season, but as time goes on, do you still think that's it's something that can be achievable? I think I think it, it I think it will happen because if you look at um, I think Burnley put out a, a statement over the weekend which was which was you know just a stark kind of reminder I think that they um, uh, of, of what's at stake here and I think they were saying that if the season doesn't doesn't finish it'll cost them fifty million pounds in terms of missed TV dates and they're already planning for about five million to be lost in in terms of gate revenue because they think the, gate, the season will finish behind closed doors. And I think that's that is the 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 one and only thing that the Premier League um, is now basing its decision on. Obviously, I think safety of the of the players and the supporters is 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 pretty much forefront in their mind. But after that, they're thinking of the financial security of the clubs, and that means having to finish the season. So I don't think it's just based on sporting integrity. If it was, um, you know, I think they'd, they'd want to finish the season as well. But I think the main thing will be will be hitting those, um, you know, fulfilling those TV contracts because that is such a massive part of TV revenue now. So I think they'll have to finish the season. I think they've done the right thing in terms of just keeping it open ended for now because there is no clear, um, there is no clear path. Um, and you can see really in what's going on with the in the world of football that the way that the players and the clubs aren't aren't on the same page about pay cuts. The way that there's four or five clubs now that furloughed staff. They're really struggling to cope with this. I don't think they they have the answers, um, and they they just do not have a good way of finish of, of an exit strategy out of this. Um, and because we don't know when this is all going to finish, um, the uncertainty is what's kind of killing all those clubs. So it, it's a really difficult position for them. But I think some have not covered themselves in glory, and I would consider Newcastle United as one of those clubs. You mentioned the two key points there, and we'll start with uh, the follow of staff, and uh, that included the media staff as well at Newcastle. I think a lot of people um, missed the the 3pm YouTube 
game that was uh, which was set to be broadcast every week while this was going on. What's your your take on on Newcastle furloughing the staff, given that Liverpool have gone back on their decision uh, to, to furlough their staff? Well, yeah, I think we obviously need to, to preface any discussion about it with the admission that the same thing's happening in our industry. Um, arrival news uh, news uh, publisher has 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 furloughed, you know, Reach PLC, which which make which is uh, the publisher of the Chronicle, has also furloughed staff. So you know, the, there are a lot of big companies that that um, you know that own businesses that are taking are taking similar decisions. I think the reason that it's very difficult when you look at Newcastle United is because it's only certain players, it's only certain staff, sorry, who have been furloughed. It's also, which I think is is troubling, um, is that, you know, the, 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 broad, the broadcast money that's coming in is so big that to use the government, the government's money is, you know, is unpalatable, certainly. And, um, you know, I, I think I think what, what I find difficult is, the fact that I'd like to see some financial, I'd like to see what the financial reckoning was behind it. We, we know Newcastle United just they don't communicate particularly well. I mean, they haven't actually at any point issued a statement really about it. You know, they haven't, I'd like to see the financial realities behind this decision. Is it, is it that, you know, that they, they need the money in if they don't, and they're not going to be a going concern because how how is it that fourteen other clubs in the Premier League are not are not in that position? Newcastle have always made a big play about the fact that they, you know, they've well run and and these things. Yet they furloughed they furloughed non essential playing staff. It's it, it doesn't sit well with me at all. It really doesn't because that government scheme is is set up to help um, to help you know organisations that, that potentially would be laying staff off if they didn't. Um, if they, if they couldn't furlough them. So I find it very, very difficult. You know, you've got that and you've got the, what they're doing with season tickets as well. They're the only club, I think, at the moment that's taken any money for next season or that's um, or that's not offered refunds o- over that as well, which doesn't sit particularly well. Um, just, it's, it's typical Newcastle United under Mike Ashley. Obviously, we've got, and I don't think people are going to forget, forget in a hurry what happened with Sports Direct either. It's typical Newcastle United. They have, they've taken some bad decisions, haven't communicated well on it. And um, they don't seem to want to communicate or they don't seem to want to sort of be honest and open about the decisions they've made. You know, I know there was an email that went out to all staff. It was a little bit more, um, a little bit more effusive. I don't think that's, that's come out into the public domain yet, but you'd like to think that they could, they would justify it. But as you've seen with Liverpool, they listen to their supporters. They've reversed the decision. I don't think they should have taken it in the first place. They've reversed the decision. Newcastle United do not listen to their supporters for the most part. Um, they haven't responded to the NUST, which is the Sporters Trust, on the season tickets. Um, and it's fairly typical, isn't it? We know this is what Newcastle United do when things are, when the going gets tough, they just make decisions and they very rarely, um, you know, will will explain them. So, it, it, unfortunately, it's what we've come to expect. So, th- yeah, I, Paul. So, so, I was just yeah. going to ask, do you think that you, you said, you know, people probably won't forget this in a hurry, given... Obviously, we don't know when the next season is even going to kick off, but given when it does, you're going to have 10,000 empty seats to start with. Obviously, the hope would have been you give them 10,000 half-season tickets away to get people in this season. They can see maybe uh, some progress on the pitch and then they snap up them season tickets for next season. But given the way the club have acted, that's going to have a knock-on effect. And do you see fans saying, like, like drawing the line and saying, right, we're not, we're not going back? Well, I think I think that was something they were worried about anyway, because obviously there's a lot of supporters who've maybe 
um, you know, been there this season and have, and uh, you know either haven't liked the way the, the haven't liked the football or they've been you know just finding it the whole experience a little bit dispiriting. You know, they 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 maybe gave them one last chance last season. Um, you know, more out of duty maybe than 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 anything else. And you know, you hear anecdotally that other that, that more people were potentially going to um, going to resign their seat because you know we we we've seen those promises before and they weren't really backed up yet. Last summer, for the first time, a lot of people did walk away. So I think that was always always a problem. I think it's up to individuals. I, I, I can totally understand why some people want to keep with the football club. There might be some people who've seen, you know, there have been things that they've done over the course of the season that have been a little bit better. Um, and I don't want to tar the whole club with the, with with the with you know the the brush of um, some of the actions that have been taken by the very people at the top because there's some fantastic things going on at the club. Um, and you mentioned the 3 p.m. retro games. I think that was that was an example of something that they were doing, a really smart idea that's been, that somebody's come up with. It was giving filling a hole in people's lives on a Saturday at 3 p.m. 15,000 people watched the last game. So, you know, it's not that the club as a whole is, is, is you know, is not, not, um, not working out. But I think what you'll see is a lot of people taking decisions based on what, what's happened. And obviously, Mike Ashley, um, you know, hit the way that I think that he reacted to to the lockdown three weeks ago, two, three weeks ago, um, might have, might have, might have swayed people. I, I always find it's, it's difficult for me to kind of, to kind of tell people what to do with their season tickets or even to sort of comment too much on that kind of stuff, because it really is an individual, um, decision. And, you know, I, I, I know that I don't, I don't pay for I don't pay for my seat. You know, it's a press seat. Um, so, well, we did, we did when we were banned, obviously, but, um, I don't pay for, I don't pay for that seat. So it's it, a, totally up to individuals what they do um, but I think it is going to be a problem for Newcastle to convince people to keep coming back unless they can offer them something new and I think unfortunately that some of the communication around around even this situation here has been has been poor and um, you know it's it's even harder for those people who are trying to do the right things to, to do them now when either they're on furlough leave or they're not um, they're not um, you know they're, they're not they haven't got extra people uh, there to help them you mentioned there the communication now at the start of the season, Lee Charney, it was indicated that he would try and communicate more, whether it be through the, the match day programme or, or what have you. But one of the main issues that we always seem to get back to with Newcastle United, and it's been the issue for at least the last decade, is communication. Uh, and why does it always go back to that? Because Lee Charney's been managing director for many, many years. So, you know, he's got the, the ability to open up, to to contact us, to, to you know, to do an interview, which he did uh, last season. Um, but it doesn't happen regularly enough. And, and you would think that now would be the right time just to come out and explain why they've taken that season ticket money, why they've made the decision to furlough the staff. Just that little bit of communication could make the, make the difference. Yeah, I mean, look, you... you, you... I think I would say that, that Lee Charney's done more interviews this season with with us than than he has done before. Um, he, he's obviously done two, I think, and then obviously did the program notes at the start of the season as well. I think the problem comes back to to Mike Ashley really because I don't think there's people under under him are particularly comfortable talking about some of these decisions. I don't think sometimes they're actually empowered, particularly uh, to, to to make those decisions. It, it always seems difficult to me sometimes to get answers on some of those things. And, and, and it is largely, I think, I mean, on some things, it's it's maybe because the decisions come from people above. I, I can't I can't kind of answer really why communication-wise it feels sometimes as if it's 
Um, I, I think there are some really good people uh, who will communicate with us. Who, and, and, you know, there, there are times when I think, you you know, we do get information passed to us and, and, and they can be good. They can be good on certain things. But, you know, stuff like explaining why, why they're furloughed, it, I don't know. I really don't know why they why they don't why they don't just do that because it's not. It's obviously it's a decision that affects those employees, but it's a. I think sometimes they they operate as if it's sports direct, where the only people that they have to answer to are shareholders, or um, you know, all the people who work within the business. Where this is a football club, it's a community organisation, so it isn't just about. Um, making sure that the bottom line's okay or making sure that Mike Ashley's will is it goes forward or making sure that, you know, we we will do the right thing as far as we consider. It's it's about communicating that strategy and actually getting people involved in that strategy as well. Um, and making them feel part of it because it's a club. It's not just about the few people and few what few people do. Now, unfortunately I think what's happened is that the battle lines have been drawn long, long ago. And I think the problem is that now they know that whatever they say, and, and sometimes they have come out and been quite open and honest about things and found that they've got stick for it as as well. So I think that they feel bruised by that experience. Um, they don't think they can win on a certain things because I think sometimes they feel like they've got some unfair stick. And I think those those kind of, you know, those positions have become entrenched a little bit on both sides. And, and that means the communication um, when it does happen, you know, it is very much a case of, you know, well, sometimes when we do do the right things, we get, get criticised for it anyway. Um, so I think that that is what happens. But, you know, I would like to think that, um, you know, that, that, that it, it would at some point, if you explain things, you know, you might you might not you might not spare yourself the criticism from the, the kind of more high profile or the loudest critics, but you might win round maybe some of the moderates if you explained it. Um, but but I think that the problem is it's just the space that we're in really with Newcastle United and this regime. For a lot of people, there's just no going back now, um, and that I think in turn creates some of the problems that we saw over the course of the season in terms of atmosphere and attendances and why they ended up having to give away ten thousand season tickets. But it's a shame really because. You know, I think there have been some positive things that happened this season as, as well as, you know, the last couple of weeks, which have been not, I don't think, have been particularly good. Well, just before we get on to the dreaded word, which is takeover, I just want to get your view on the argument, and you've, you've mentioned it previously uh, in this podcast, over players and their wages, not just Newcastle United, the Premier League, um, the argument between the Premier League and the PFA and you know Matt Hancock, the health secretary, got involved as well. Um, do you think players should be taking a, a deferral in their wages or a pay cut? I think, yeah, I think I think they have to really. They have to think about it when it comes down to, um, you know, looking at it, it, them either taking a pay cut or um, or you know losing some members of staff in the playing side. I think they make. I think the union actually makes a very good point in it when it says, you know, we'd like to see some of the financial reasoning behind these behind why you're asking us to take pay cuts. Because, you know, if you're saying to us that we need to take thirty percent pay cuts, but then you're furloughing staff as well, are, are you just taking an excuse to try and cut costs at this time, or is it that this is vital for the business? So I don't. I think I think the problem is that the footballers' wages are in a really easy way of you know, sort of hammering, hammering them. You know, I, I do think that it's always been the case that, that people don't like the fact that some of them get paid so well. Some of them probably don't deserve to be, but a lot of them, they're, they're members of a multi-million pound industry. They are the main players. It's a short career and I don't begrudge them the big money at all. And actually, 
you know, I, I, I totally agree with them. Why should they, why should they take the, the pay cuts when you know it's not really necessarily being explained to them what's happened? But it's a very bad look for them. At the same time, they have to accept that, you know. Look, we've taken, um, uh, you know, journalists at Reach across the board have taken a ten percent pay cut. Um, so, and and you know that is just part of it. You know, we we know that businesses are struggling. I think they have to they have to be realistic and they must accept that you know that, that when money's not coming into a business, then they probably have to take those pay cuts. Um, but they've got a very they've got a very strong union that are kind of backing them to the hill. Um, it's it's a it's a moral maze. It is a total moral maze, and I understand that 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 for them, they probably think that that some of this is clubs trying to cut cut costs um, when maybe they, it's not essential that they cut costs, but it's just favourable that they do. Um, I think the whole football industry is going to totally change off the back of this. You know, we, we're still seeing people talking about multi-million pound transfers this summer. You know, is that realistic? Is that going to happen? If clubs have had taken a massive hit on the bottom line, is that is that necessarily going to happen? You know, and maybe fans also need to think think that way as well. I know a lot of fans will be, you know, love the transfer aspect of football clubs, but you know, are they are, are they kind of are they understanding of the fact that this this has changed everything and and maybe those transfers won't come. I think I think you know that that for me is is the main is the main thing at the moment. But they're going to have to take pay cuts. I, I think that they probably understand that as well. Um, but I also don't think that the the, the union should um, you know the PFA should necessarily be hammered for the approach that it's got to its uh, to its members. You know this is that, that is their job to stand up for them and to make sure that if they're getting pay cuts, then then it's done for the right reasons. Yeah, it's certainly going to be an interesting debate and what uh, debate and one that will probably rage on for a couple more days, if not weeks yet. Mark, we're going to move straight on to then the dreaded word, which is takeover. I feel like we do need a jingle that goes off every time we mention that word. Um, we're going to hear from Neil Mitchell in a bit, who the former NUST chairman, he's uh, the man in the Middle East who does some infrequent columns for us every time uh, the story raises its head. First of all, Mark, what is the latest in stand from your point of view on what is happening with regarding uh, the PIF, Manus, Davely and Newcastle United? Well, there you go. That's, that's, the, that's the £300 million question, isn't it? I, I, I think we, we're uh, not necessarily any further on than we were last week in terms of the what's, um, what's out there for, for public consumption. Talks ongoing. Um there seems to be a, a seriousness about this that there hasn't been about um, previous bids, but we said that back in January as well. And obviously things got got bogged down and complicated. Um, from the Mike Ashley end, it's very much a case of, okay, if the Saudis are behind you and the money's there, then do the deal. Um, and I think we're just waiting probably for the next for the next move there. But it does feel as if this is, um, this is crunch time and we're uh, approaching the point at which really either needs to be done or um you know put put to bed and uh, and and maybe uh, maybe we all move on from it but i think there's a real feeling at the moment um in in takeover land as if this is this is crunch period if they can come up with the money or if they can come up with a, a proof of funds um i think you know it will it will get done but we but we see i've been here before on several occasions and uh, so I'm, I'm i'm remaining cautious at the moment I mean, just this weekend, it was uh, revealed that the PIF had put in an investment into a, a cruise liner carnival over the United States. Um, interesting that one report that I saw described it as a, a low-level investment. 
just shy of 430 million, I think was the uh, the total amount. So low level maybe for uh, the, the crown prince there of Saudi Arabia. But that, in a way, does that give you a bit of hope, do you think, Mark? Or should it give Newcastle United fans hope that, look, A, they are looking at what people deem low level investments in terms of the capital they've got, but also that even in today's market when things are as crazy as they are um, due to the coronavirus, it looks like the PIF are still wanting to make investment, um, not just in Saudi Arabia, but across the globe. Yeah, and I think I think for for them at the moment, you know, that they're, they're it's it's a probably a good time to buy a few of these things, isn't it? And it would be um, you know, but I think I think ironically that although they've probably got that eight point two percent stake in um, in the in the cruise liner cheaper than they would get it, I think the message that's come back from Mike Ashley is that you wouldn't be undercut on the price. The price remains the price, and there's um, and it won't and it won't necessarily materially change because of what's going on in the Premier League at the moment, because uh, Mike Ashley just simply will not sell on the cheap. I think that'll be the one thing that he probably, the one message that he wants us to send out there. And I think that's where uncertainty begins, isn't it? That that if, if they are trying to negotiate a slightly cheaper price because of what's going on and Mike Ashley's saying no, then, you know, you begin to get into this, um, this, this very sort of uh, murky sort of period that seems to happen in every takeover where, you know, we're not sure what Mike Ashley's asking for. We're not sure what the buyers are prepared to pay. Um, but it would be a good time to get into the Premier League if they do get into it because there'll be a lot of teams tightening their belt, whereas you would think Newcastle with the might of um, the uh, PIF and potentially the Ruben brothers behind them would, would find it easier to fund moves for players and, um, and, and maybe capital projects as well. So, you know, I think it would be a game changer if it happens. Um, and, uh, you know, I think as much as I, I, I am cautious, I think, you know, it would be the right time for a new, new start for everybody. So I'm going to let you hear now from Neil. I spoke to him earlier on from Dubai and he gives a bit of insight into the view over there in the Middle East and some rather interesting information he's had on a former group that uh, was interested in buying Newcastle United, that is the, uh, the Bin Zaid group. So sit back and enjoy. Hi Neil, thank you very much for joining us. I hope you're keeping well. How are you doing over there in Dubai? And the first question is, what was your initial reaction to hearing that the PIF were back on the scene? Hi, Andrew. Yeah, thanks for having us on. Um, all very well, all things considering. Um, the situation here in Dubai is that we're now on a 24-hour lockdown. You need movement permits for everything. I mean, obviously, the, the initial breaking of the news happened, I think it was the night before the... or the night of the Southampton game, I think it was. Uh, off the top of my head, uh, I was certainly at Le Petit Belgian Motor City where I've managed to get all the Geordies together. Um, and uh, I was called by Chris McCarty, who's the head of sport at Dubai. I read you out here in Dubai uh, to ask about my initial thoughts. And my initial thoughts, because of the, it was curious. It's a curious way that it was leaked. It was leaked to a curious source in the States. Um, and that immediately always puts me on edge. History suggests that once things get into the press, Mr. Ashley gets quite upset about it. He likes to do his business outside of the public eye. And so it was weird. I, I couldn't work out who who was going to serve by being leaked the way it was. Um, then there's wheels within wheels and different things happened. And then we've had this further story drop 
from two different sources um saying things have gone further and i think it's it's interesting to see nobody's really clear on exactly where it's at firstly it was somebody said well the buyer sent paperwork to the premier league and then it was the buyer and the seller have sent paperwork to the premier league then it's well some of the paperwork doesn't match with what we've been told and we don't know really what's at then another source will say it's the furthest on a, a bids ever got and i can categorically say it isn't um i have to say that um but at the same time um it seems to have progressed quite far um out here in the middle east initially there wasn't a lot of noise about it uh other than amongst the expat communities who've got connection to the british press um there seems to be a little bit more word of it talking to pals in saudi in particular it does seem to be something that's murmured about but still not um excessively um exposed but that that would be quite normal there I think the, the the crux of the matter, and 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 there seems to be so many different things here which we just don't know, and I think that's that's always going to be the problem, and it should be the problem really. We shouldn't know most of it, but when things get leaked and things get partly put out in the pub to to the the the, the public, the problem then becomes everybody's looking for that grain of hope. Um, and it's that grain of hope that will keep you going, but it's also that grain of hope that could damn you in the long run. And it's very, very difficult. With one thing I've learned over time is Newcastle United fans are extremely resourceful. They'll find information from all sorts of places. Will become the most expert um, playing spotters in the world. But equally, I I get sent privately, either by email or on, via Twitter DMs. All sorts of stuff, which actually, if you pick through it, sometimes there's good information in there. Um, and it's amazing where people will find this stuff from. So that's that's the tricky here is, is dealing with what's the right information? What do we know? What don't we know? Um, and can it be an indicator of hope? Uh, and I think that is a, it's a real problem. Managing that within the fan base is a real problem. Um, and it's a problem for both sides, buying side and selling side, I would suggest. Now, you sound slightly sceptical surely the investment in the cruise liner company Carnival presents some hope to you, some hope to fans that the PIF are looking to invest even in this difficult time and that Newcastle United could be next on their radar. Yeah, I've seen the article about the investment in, in Carnival and also the, the last paragraph in that FT article that a lot of people seem to be latching on to that there's going to be more deals announced soon. Um, interesting. Uh <laughs> I, I tell you the, the the one attitude that the Gulf do have because they're often cash rich is they do tend to go by that Buff, Warren Buffett theory about be greedy while those around you are being fearful. That's the advantage of being cash rich. That's the power of being cash rich. Also buying from the Gulf to the UK because it's not just uh, Saudi buying at the minute. I think the Qataris have just bought the Ritz, for example. Um, so, you know, there's another big money deal in London going through. Um, so things are happening um, and, and it's the time that they will flex their muscle because the, the places that aren't cash rich can't. And it might be a time to get a good deal in all sorts of sectors. Um, I think, can, can it, uh, again, a Saudi contact that I know who, who his information's really wrong says that 
all the deals that PIF are looking at at the moment are being closely scrutinised, and some are being mothballed, and some are being proceeded uh, proceeded with. So there's 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 a bit of hope in there, if you will. Um, the problem with one side of it is, and I'll, I'll try and elaborate this on this a bit later, is you don't. It's not. This isn't a deal like Mohammed bin Salman deciding he wants a posh painting or a nice big yacht. It, it's not a personal purchase for him. It will be a strategic investment for PIF, um, and and it's not quite the same. And and the other thing we don't know is okay if PIF are providing eighty percent. What are they providing that for? Is that just eighty percent of the purchase price, and then no more? They won't then throw the coffers of Saudi Arabia over to the club. They, it's an investment that they want to return on that investment, and eventually, um, the 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 or that twenty percent stakeholders will have to find a way to return that eighty percent to them, um, because that was one way it was suggested early on to me by somebody who, again, is really wrong with information that that would be the kind of deal it was looking at. The other positive, if you want to look at it, this eighty twenty split, it seems to be a way that Saudis are, and PIF are doing a lot of their deals in oil and gas at the moment. They don't want to take one hundred percent of the risk; they want somebody to spread the risk burden. So again, that that kind of makes sense. Um, the other thing that you could take from that carnival purchase is one thing that they want to proceed with in Saudi is to look at tourism and ways to drive people into Saudi Arabia. They look at how the UAE, for example, is diversified and the UAE's economy is based on tourism heavily these days and it works. It works very well for Dubai and it works very well for Abu Dhabi. Um, and so Saudi are going to want a bit of that. And they are talking about resort even on the Red Sea. They're talking about opening up the country in ways um, that you wouldn't believe, which would be fascinating. Um, now, um, what better way to drive tourism than to have your kingdom emblazoned all over the shirts of a Premier League club? And certainly, as an advertising vehicle, the Premier League club is one of the best ever. From stuff I've seen other people who wanted to do in terms of um, growing a global fan base and, and, and using the, 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 the power of the brand of Newcastle United to support your brand and to drive people to you, it's certainly a very, very good way. I've seen some of the proposals involved in other potential deals, and, and certainly that is certainly on people's minds. <sighs> Difficult though because we don't know. Is this all? Is it all in? Are Saudi all into this, or are they not? It, 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 and and there's very confused messages coming within the region about that. Some of the commentators who you'd normally say you would know, and you're and if you're not 100 percent certain, then I wonder why. Um, and then you also have to take sources. Of, of what's going on within the deal at, at face value and so sort of understand well what why are you releasing that story in that way who was your source of information or who would potentially be your source of information and is that why you're portraying it in this manner for example um we know certain reporters are close to amanda stavely in her camp and so they will generally always want to produce a positive story about it However, that also said, if you look at the glads from BN Sports, for example, um, because of the geopolitical problems in the region, I, I can't ever see anybody at BN Sports being very positive about a story coming from Saudi because it's not going to happen geopolitically. There's too much tension still there. Um, now, that over time, the next few years might change with the coming World Cup, but that's um, still a way off yet. And there's a lot of other things to, to sort of manage. 
So what's the situation like in the Middle East? Is business shut down? And how do you think the current situation will impact on things, especially like buying a football club, for example? Business situation in the Middle East is an interesting one at the moment. Um, some sectors are pretty much shut down. Uh, some sectors are encouraging people to work from home and, and to do what you can from home. Um, it's very difficult at the moment. Uh, it's certainly a concern. Uh, that said, here in the UAE, the government are working with the banks and working with companies to really pump investment in internally and try and get the commerce wheels turning as soon as everything's stable. Um, I think the priority at the moment is ensuring people's safety, which is quite right and proper. Um, I think uh, if you look at the, the UAE curve at the moment, um, because they've intensified testing in some of the areas that they've actually fully locked down, um, I think it's still rising. But I think if you look at the comparative curve and the comparative uh, curve with the people passing the COVID at the moment, it, it, it's been the right thing to do and they've acted swiftly. Um, across the wider Middle East, yeah, it, 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 there's a lot of concern in the short term. Um, there's a lot of concern about jobs. There's a lot of concern about wages. Um <sighs> Does it impact things? Well, yes, of course it might. I mean, the whole current situation impacts things. Uh, it, it, there's no doubt about that. Um, and I think that's part of the reason which makes me look at, well, hang on, why now? Why release all this 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 noise now? Because it's, it's, it's a very strange time for the world, not just the region. Because given that pretty much the globe is shut down due to coronavirus, do you think now is a good time to buy a football club? Is now the right time to buy a football club? Um, in a word, m most of the people who are, I've spoken to who've been involved in this sort of thing in the not-so-recent past have said no. Um, you don't know what the situation is with the current season. Will we have a current season finish? Will we not? When will the next season start? What happens with transfers? What happens with transfer windows? What happens with players out of contract on the 30th of June? Uh, how much money is going to have to be paid back to television companies, if any? What's your financial position going to be? What's the impact of lack of gate receipts? Um, is there going to be in positions to make Premier League clubs support lower league clubs? Um, is everything going to be null and void and expunged? And what, what ramifications are of that? Um, how do you then also do your due diligence properly? How do you put your people in place? How do you put a transition place and team in place rather to ease the smooth from one owner to another? Because that need, is needed. You need the change management there. They use a big buzzword, I guess. But it's what you need. You need not just a, somebody to say, right, gives the keys I'm in. You need somebody to ease that change over. You need people who can interact with somebody like Lee, Ch Lee Charney, who pretty much is the only person in that in St. James Park that knows how all the operations work. Um, it's not like there's a team of people there that you need to kind of piggyback and, and learn, but you certainly need a transition team. How is that possible when at the minute you can't even fly out in the Middle East? And so there's so many questions, questions, questions that there's no sensible or logical answer to. How long is it going to go on for? How are we going to play games behind closed doors? What happens if we play this mad nine-game intense short period of time behind closed doors tournament that ends up seeing a team like Newcastle United relegated at the end of it, bizarrely, because the players just kind of get their heads around playing in behind closed doors in this mad three games a week. There's just so many questions from a football front and from a financial front that, you know, to be pricing up 
a football club, and, and and I can give you an example. I won't name the team. There, there is a team I know that's been up for sale in the championship, and the owner about a month ago was talking 100 million, and he's already dropped that price to 80, and I'm sure that'll go lower. And so, it, it, that's just one example on a slightly smaller scale. And yes, the the mechanics and the finances are very different in the championship because they rely more on gate receipts, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But this is the kind of thing that's out there at the moment. I just just don't see how you can sensibly. I mean, even if if you were to say, yeah, but Saudi, you've got deep pockets. Yeah, they do. And you know what? The pounds are a good rate as well at the minute. That's something else I didn't mention before. You know, the, the pounds drop from something like 4.8 to 4.4 reals. It's a significant drop. And so suddenly you're not spending quite the same amount of money as you were before because of the exchange rates. And so it, 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 there's things there which could drive it on and make a deal suddenly worthwhile. Um, but can you honestly say the club's worth 350 million at the moment? I would suggest it isn't. Is it worth 300? I don't know. And I would defy anybody else to tell me that. You know, so you're taking a big gamble. And we've had 12, 13 years of a gambler, and he's got we're relegated twice in that time. We've only been relegated something like six times in our history, and he's done it twice in the last 12 years. And that's because he gambles. And we don't want another gambler. I really don't want another gambler. Somebody I trust exceptionally in the in, in the football world um, for his information and contacts said to me, he said, "Bitch, look, honestly, anybody doing this now wants their head examined," and and that's a that's a concern to me. That you know, it, it's I know short term the value might be less and it'll come back up. I'm quite sure it will, um, but we genuinely don't know what the football world's going to be like post COVID, not just in the UK the global game and the European game. And I'm talking, could there be fallouts with, with regional and local and national FAs that leads to the formation of a Super League, for example? And what impact does that have on the Premier League, on Premier League clubs who aren't invited to the table? And and right now, would we be invited to that table? I very much doubt it, unless there was two leagues, two divisions rather. If there's two divisions, maybe, but not if there's just one. Um... And I know, know pretty much for a fact from speaking to somebody else in the football industry that the only thing stopped, that stopped the football league, a European Super League happening in the past has been the British clubs because they get so much more money off Sky. But there'll come a time where that might not be viable anymore and they may, the English clubs might turn around and say, right, okay, time to do this, bye-bye. Um, so there's so many questions. Um, one of the questions I get asked regularly is, do you think Mike Ashley would deal with Binzai Group again? Um, I would counter that with another question. Would Sheikh Khaled want to deal with Mike Ashley again? You've got one very upset uh, member of the royal family on your hands. And um, exceptionally angry, exceptionally frustrated um, by a lot of things that happened within that deal. I think Binzai Group um, would hold their hands up and say they would love to go back and do a few things quite differently. Um, but they didn't, and, it, and you can't change that in the past. Um, going forward, uh, look, I, th I think if the, the, the right opportunity presented itself in the right way um, and you could spend time with the chairman explaining it and ensure that the dirty tricks of football didn't upset um, people again. Um, I think, yeah, you know, I think there'd be 
there's still interest. There's no doubt about that. Um, and 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 having seen some of what I've seen, personally, quite gutted for them. Because um, the one thing uh, I would say, uh, having got to know Midhat a little bit, is he's a really nice guy and he cares. And that's why he got dragged into the whole answering WhatsApp things and things like that. He wanted to make fans happy. He got it. He gets it. Um, he totally understands it and he was keen to make it happen. Um, but yeah, then it just got complicated. And um, I think, I certainly wouldn't say never, uh, but I still think there's some internal work to do there that people need reassurances that I think if it was to, they were to come back, it would have to be to get the deal done. Um, and you certainly wouldn't be seeing articles from me in the Chronicle about it, I think. I think it would be something that would have to be very much more low-key and done, the, done a slightly different way again. But um, you can't say never. Uh, but at the same time, uh, there's things that would need to happen and things that would need to change. Just finally, Neil, every time that you do a column for us here at Chronicle Live, you do get some questions from some members on Twitter asking, what gives you the right? What is your justification for getting at what you know about Newcastle United and about these businesses in the Middle East that are linked with a potential takeover of the club? So what can you tell us about your links? Not going to ask you to name your sources, but tell me about how you've become so contacted out there in the Middle East. Yeah, the connections thing, it always makes me me smile. It, it is, I ask myself sometimes, if I'm honest with you, Andrew, how on earth do I get myself into these situations? Um, rewind the clock, I was founding chair of Newcastle United Supporters Trust. We get involved with a thing called Yes We Can, where we try to encourage fans to buy into a, a scheme, a government recognised scheme, legal scheme to actually invest and try and buy the club. Um, and in that scheme, I met some very interesting people along the way. Um, so most of them, Geordie's given the help pro bono to a campaign that I thought was great, and it wasn't to be. Um, fast forward a couple of years, uh, there was a, a consortium from the other side of the pond trying to buy the club. They wanted to speak to, they spoke to a lot of people, but they were pointed to the direction of myself and Steve Hasty, who people know, again, former Founding Trust member, and Bill Corcoran, both of whom are founders of the, the Fans Food Bank, which everybody knows. Um, basically, to talk about how do you connect with the fans? How do you connect with the region? And we opened up a number of contacts that we could give them to go and speak to people. We weren't associated with the trust anymore then, but um, we certainly were keen to help and keen to see something move on. And that didn't happen. Um, the same group got together, I think around about 2014. By that time, I'm in Dubai. Um, and it turns out one of the guys involved with, with that was also in Dubai then and happened to be a patient of mine. Uh, and this is what people don't get about Dubai. It's quite actually a, a village. It's a small world for expats. Um, and you, you, the, the paths you cross are quite 
it's quite unusual how connected you can be here and it's suddenly this will lead to that conversation and that'll lead to that conversation uh and then you know oh you you want to talk about Newcastle United you go and see there's a dentist who's a big Newcastle fan you want to go and chat to him so amongst my patients are for example a former board member of Sports Direct have I spoke to him about Mr Ashley you better have <laughs> you better have I'm trying to pick his brains and get stuff out of him um and, and that's pretty much kind of how it works. And then, it, obviously, I used to co-host a radio show in the UK on on one of the local radio stations called Tune Talk with a, with a friend of mine, Andrew. Um, one of the other things Andrew does is international real estate. Um, and I get a, a message off Andrew saying, you'll never guess who I've just spoken to. And he'd actually been, uh, he introduced me to somebody who then introduced me in, to Benzai Group. And that's how I got to meet Midhap through Benzai Group. It, it, it's one of these small world connections, um, and it's mad. You you find because because I've got the opportunity, and you guys at the Chronicle give me the kind opportunity to make my mouth go openly because I'm used to dealing with things like speaking to supporters with the trust. I'm quite happy to write an article for a newspaper. I'm quite happy to pick a microphone up and talk to people like I am now. Um, that then that brings other people to you and and you get sent stuff and email stuff and direct messages on Twitter or people want your number and they'll call you and talk to you about this or they'll talk to you about that. And it's amazing where some of this information actually comes from. Um, and I, it's, a, it's an honour, really. It's a privilege. Um, it's frustrating because sometimes I really want to blab more. But I know there's, there's certain things you've got to respect and certain people you've got to respect and keep protect their reputations. Um, it's why it frustrates me because I could see how close Ben's eye group were. I've, I've seen how close one of the other consortiums were before. Uh, you know, I've seen signed documents with things almost ready to go. Uh, it's so, so frustrating. But also that gives you an insight on how Mr. Ashley likes to do his business. And I think the key thing, the key, key takeaway is anybody who deals with Mr. Ashley, I genuinely believe Mike Ashley will sell the club to whoever puts the right amount of money on the table that he wants at that time and is prepared to do the deal to the letter exactly how he wants it to be done. And that's the problem is nobody's delivered that. And I think to do that, you've got to know how he works, how, how his influences work and how who his influencers in business are. You also have to be prepared that tomorrow morning you might find that the deal's slightly different to what it was yesterday and it'll be different again in two days' time. And roll with that and not get offended by that and expect it. Don't try and second-guess him. Just expect that things might change. And then I think once somebody can actually sit down with his team and work a deal like that out and say, okay, you want it that way? Let's do it that way. You want it that way? Okay, that's maybe it's not standard, but let's see if we can make it work. He has to feel like he's getting a win, and you have to feel like you're getting a win. And it's creating a win-win situation. And so far, nobody's been able to do that. And that's why the club remains unsold. He's never been, and we don't know to what level he is at the minute, a seller under pressure. He's always been a, a, a seller at leisure. There's never been a pressure there does the current situation with his own business other businesses give leverage possibly is that why somebody's jumped and again made an announcement now to put a bit more pressure i think and they've got a bit of leverage i hope not 
because again, I, he's not going to be bounced into it. I can, I can tell you that in my opinion. I don't think he'll be bounced into it. But um, is there potential for leverage there? Hundred percent. It probably in a way there's never been before. Um, so could this be something which then emerges? Yeah, it could. But really, there's still, for me personally at the moment, far too many questions. And it's because of the amount of people I've interacted with positively, the amount of connections I've made, the amount of information I've been privileged to receive and, and be brought in on. And yeah, some of it turns out to not be true, but it doesn't mean it wasn't true from at their time or at the time. It doesn't mean somebody's just selling you wrong indefinitely. Um and I think because there's so much confusion at the moment in the world, not just in the around this deal, it's very difficult to know how how and where this is all at. But that's that's in a nutshell some of the journey. It's it's a little bit more complicated than that, but um suffice to say, um it's it's an honor to be able to try and manage some of the information for people because the the hope's killing everyone. And that's one of the things the club desperately needs back is hope and the, and the ability to dream again. That's gone. And then when the dust settles on all this, we need as a fan base to get back together again and to start to be kinder with each other and, and, and to genuinely allow differences of point of view not to dissolve into a catfight because we're really good at the minute at shooting ourselves in the foot. And I think as a fan base, there's a lot of healing needed doing and we need to spend time working on that concept and we need an owner who will allow the concept of Newcastle United to emerge again, not just as a club, but as a city and a community and a fan base. So there we have it, Mark. Some very interesting snippets there from Neil. What stood out for you? Um, well, I think I think Neil's Neil's interesting on the uh, on the Bin Zayed group because I think that there was always an element of mystery about what happened there. Um, he's spoken directly to um, to Midhat Kidwai, who's obviously the uh, front facing um, part of that bid. I still have my kind of doubts about about all of that and about what happened there. And I I think I find it very strange that people don't want to talk about what's happened if they've been, you know, maybe publicly humiliated a little bit in the bids. I mean, Amanda Stavely, to be to be fair to her, at least came out and talked after Mike Ashley sort of effectively accused her of being a time waster. She at least came out and spoke about it. I think I think with Bin Zayed, that was always a strange one, wasn't it? How, how if they were time wasters, how did they get as far as they got? If they weren't time wasters, then why did it all kind of go uh, go as it did. So I think that that's interesting. It's, it's always interesting to, to talk to Neil about about those things as well. Because is he, you know, his doubts about what's going on with the Saudi Arabian are probably doubts that I share as well. Questions that haven't been answered yet. Um, obviously, they don't talk uh, publicly. They're not, you know, they, they and, and probably wouldn't want to talk privately either, given given where we stand with everything as well. So I found that I found that you know it's a very it's, it's interesting. Neil um, Neil always gets a bit of stick when we published columns by him because people sort of ask him, oh, well, he's only a dentist in Dubai, but as he spoke there, you know, he's, he, he does know people he's got, um, he's got, he's got previous when it comes to, to trying to, uh, to do, you know, to, to put together these, these sorts of things as well. And, um, you know, he's obviously very interested in sharing these things with um, Newcastle funds as well. So his, his is an opinion. It's not necessarily an opinion and not necessarily everything that he says is, uh, is where I come from, but I think it's always very interesting to hear what he says because he does, you know, he's quite measured in the way that he, that, that he talks about things, things. And hopefully for a lot of people who just read what he said, rather than 
heard heard what he, he says, then that might be quite quite illuminating as well. And as I said, you know, maybe not all of it is stuff that I necessarily um, agree with, but it's uh, it's really interesting to to hear him hear him talk. You mentioned there the Binzai group and have, they haven't responded, they haven't you know discussed what went on. But according to Neil, there you know they are quite angry at the way it ended. Um, but they haven't gone away, which is quite interesting because I, I suppose the skeptic would, would many people would kind of turn their nose over that and say, well, yeah, how serious were they? Yeah, I think the, the, the problem is that, um, that, you know, they, they didn't conduct themselves in a way that was befitting a group that was about to take over Newcastle United. We, we, we started getting WhatsApps to fans. We started getting, you know, everybody, every person on Tyneside who, who was industrious enough was starting to get make contact with them. They were saying all kinds of things. And my big problem was that I knew that, that the things that they put out about at the start of that statements that they put out were false. They, they did not um, correspond with the reality of the situation. They said they were owners and directors tests. They weren't. And that was my big problem with that. And I always said that last summer, that was what made me skeptical of them at the time. I think, you know, they'd say in their statements could be blown apart by people in the Premier League or Newcastle at any point. Um, they weren't because I think there were, there were people, um, you know, respecting those confidences. But I, I'd like to know what the inconsistencies between that and what actually happened were, you know. But obviously, you know, I've, I've, I've offered them several occasions, I think actually, um, you know, the chance a forum on the, in the Chronicles pages to, to explain what happened. But um, but they haven't taken that up yet, and and maybe that's explained by the fact that they want to they want to get back to the table because have you seen with Amanda Stavely, um, it can look like well there's no chance of this coming back, and then here she is again, you know with potentially you know uh, some very heavyweight back back in for the football club. So you know I think we have to be careful running people down too much or building them up too much as well because you know sometimes we just aren't privy to what actually is said in the in the in closed doors, and I think. For me personally, I'd just like this situation to resolve one way or the other as soon as possible because, um, you know, I find this, I've never covered, you know, I've covered now takeovers for the best part of two and a half years in this form that we're in now. And um, it's the most difficult thing that you can possibly write about because, you know, one side can have one point of view, another side can have another point of view. And it's very difficult to get to the bottom of what's actually going on because, um the two opposing views, you know, it, it seems like sometimes people will just stick to those points of view and that, you know, you might actually have it independently that there's another version of events. So it, it's very difficult to, to, um, to, to get to the bottom of what's going on with these things because, you know, there's probably usually only three or four, five, six, maybe people that actually know what's going on. And a lot of them um, are so high up that they, they, they aren't going to want to talk to um, they aren't going to want to talk to journalists. And it may be that sometimes you're hearing things second or third hand. So it is difficult. It's very difficult. It's not like covering transfers where there's usually a very um, obvious way that things are going, you know, and, and or, 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 you know, match reports or, you know, dealing with managers or players and things like that. It's just, it's just not like that at all. So we, um, we just have to kind of rely on the information that we get. But my take on what's, uh, what, what's being said about the Binzai group is it still doesn't really add up in my mind, but it's interesting that, that somebody who I trust in Neil um, has, has got a different opinion to than maybe what I had in the summer. The other thing that stood out for me there for what Neil said was someone he'd spoken to had said, anybody that wants to buy a football club in the current climate needs their head 
kind of examining. It's interesting because we talked previously there about, uh, you know, the PIF getting involved in this cruise line again, it did a lower deal than maybe they would have done six months ago. But when you look at a football club, it's not the same as it, you know, buying a football club's totally different. The market values are up and down, but no one knows, um, how a football club's going to look in three months' time, you can probably hedge your bets and say that if this cruise liner company's got enough investment, you know, people will go travelling again and it will pick up, but we don't know how much, you know, clubs could potentially have to pay back the Premier League, how much they'll lose on uh, ticket sales, et cetera, et cetera. We just don't know. And there's a big mystery over why anybody would want to buy a football club in this current climate. Yeah, yeah. And I think I think that, that, that has to be... Um a question that you know that if you if you're not if you can't I, I i personally wouldn't couldn't see how you could any due diligence that you've done before um the, the coronavirus um outbreak would still be relevant because you know a lot of the a lot of the things that you would have maybe factored in for sponsorship deals um gate receipts even tv money all of those things are now totally uncertain so you would be moving into a, a, a totally different sector, I think, from, from what you would have thought that maybe you would have been doing in January. That is my big big concern. But then you look at, you know, if they are investing in things like cruise liners at a time when, you know, nobody's going to want to go on a cruise liner until this is all um, until this is all finished. And um, then, you know, maybe it shows that, that, that they feel that they can get a cheaper, um, they can get a cheaper deal or they can get in at a time when, you know, their financial muscle can actually uh, make it make a difference. So, you know, I totally understand where um, where where uh, Neil's coming from, and, and the person that told him that is is right. But maybe the, the wealth of the sovereign fund is is the game changer there, and they and they have a little bit less of a, of a worry because they think actually, okay, we, the incomings might not be as big, but maybe the outgoings won't be as big as we 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 may be able to to buy players, we may be able to do deals for for a lot cheaper than we thought we would have had to do. You know, maybe this is the time that you could actually break into the top four for less money than than people were people were assuming would be required in January. So it does work. You know, it does work both ways really from, from that perspective. Um but but yeah, it's difficult to see how a deal would be done at the moment. How would you, you know, with, with everything in lockdown, how on earth would you would you would you kind of get over to sign the documents? How would you do all of those things? It would be, you know, it would be it would be remarkable that it happened. But obviously they've shown with with the investment in Carnival that this is uh, you know that this is it's not impossible to do. And it would be very interesting if it, if it did happen. I think it would book a trend because I think everybody else will be tightening their belts while, um, you know, this Newcastle United will be kind of looking looking up and, you know, wow, that would, you would say maybe it would be the, exactly the right time to do it. I did enjoy the reaction of fans on Twitter who um, many of them said it would be, it would be peak Mike Ashley to sell the club while no one can actually head down the big market and celebrate it. And uh, it did bring a, a little smile to my face. Um, because I think a lot of fans shared that. And we're going to try and end on a happier note. Um, Mark, I haven't told you this um, in preparation of the podcast, but I just want to ask you um, to tell me your favourite Newcastle United player that you've seen over the time you've worked at the Chronicle. We'll try and end on a happy note. Um, so just give me your favourite Newcastle United player and, and, and why. Well, it's a really, uh, you know, it's, it's a very, very interesting uh, sort of debate because there are the players that I've loved watching who haven't necessarily um, haven't necessarily stayed particularly long. I mean, I, I, you know, one of my favorite one of my favorite players um, to watch, you know, when he was on form was Hatton Ben Arthur because I just I love that idea of somebody who just didn't 
you, know, you couldn't um, you couldn't predict what he was going to do. That was that was you know that was my my sort of main um, thing with him. You just didn't know what he was going to do. Was he good? Was he bad? Was he you know did he did he um, did, did did he sort of? Uh, he, but he just burnt so you know he's burnt so brightly in such a short space of time that you just had to you just had to be really careful. My favourite period watching Newcastle United was that that brief period in 2012 when it looked like they were just never going to lose, never going to lose a game. So, I think Papa Cisse, I, I really liked watching him um, at the time. Uh, at the time when I when I kind of you know when when he was uh, when he was on form as well because I'd never seen a player in such such fantastic form. You know, he really was. Um, he really was absolutely brilliant. But um, I'm trying to think if there was any if there's anybody off the field who. Who really, um, who really matched that? I was unlucky, really, in that I, I kind of came into, um, I came into Newcastle, you know, start of the Mike Ashley regime. So I've not maybe seen some of the classic players, but off the field, I, I you know, I really, I thought there's been some fantastic ambassadors for football club: Steve Harper, Shola Miobi, yeah, Kevin Nolan was a fantastic captain, absolutely brilliant. Joey Barton was my favourite interview. You know, he just was absolutely fantastic value. Um, but I'd have to say that, um, that you know. Ben Arthur for that brief period in 2012, and uh, possibly Cisse for for that period as well were, were two of the top ones, uh, with maybe Denver Bar potentially being third. You know, he was he was a proper top class footballer at the time when he was um, when he was at Newcastle. He really was very 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 good. No, indeed, plenty to choose from. Just looking back there, James Purchase picked his dream team of the players he's played with and obviously he played in that side that you mentioned there and the players he's picked you know Yuan Kabai, the late Teote, Colaccini, Cissé's uh, in there, Hatton Ben Arthur as well and you you forget Newcastle United were in many ways spoiled I mean that was a, a great attack inside in many ways and it shame it didn't work out in the end. Yeah I think I think what was what frustrated me about that period was that they had a chance to kick on you know they had a chance to kick on after after that season, um, they didn't. They didn't. They didn't strengthen the team. They brought in. I think was it just Vernon and Anita. They had a chance to bring in other other players as well, and they didn't. And they struggled the following year. And it was very much you know where you saw the limits of the Mike Ashley regime. They had it. They had a really full, you know, very good strategy for that one season, but they didn't have a a kind of. A, a way to kind of kick on from that. I think if they got into the Champions League, Mike Ashley would have potentially, you know, would have would have released more, would have allowed them to spend more of the funds that they brought in then and they would have been able to kick on. But of course they finished fifth and then the Europa League was seen as a burden on the club by the people in charge. And it was very much a case of, you know, I'd have rather we'd have rather not finished fifth, we'd rather finish seventh um or or whatever and and you know built and built without that burden, and that, I think that that really sums up why Mike Ashley's not the right man for Newcastle United, doesn't it? Owners with real ambition would have looked at that and said, "This is a chance now to kick on," but they never did, and that I think was the biggest uh, the biggest frustration around uh, around that period. You know, there have been times when this when this club could have kicked on um, under Mike Ashley, but unfortunately, they've never taken them. Some great nights in that uh, UEFA Europa League campaign as well, Mark. Thank you very much for joining us. I hope you keep insane um, at home. And thank you very much, guys, for listening. Head over to Chronicle Live. We'll keep bringing you all the latest Newcastle Night news and some retro intro uh, interviews as well. In the meantime, please like and subscribe to the podcast and do keep safe out there. Thank you very much for listening. Mm-hmm.